The opinions expressed in the following video are not in their entirety endorsed by this podcast. They are instead the focus of our discussion today. This is your content warning. Tell me something that is not in the Bible, but people think it is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Furthermore, they were not written by eyewitnesses. For one, Jesus' disciples were illiterate. The literacy rate at the time was about 9%. It even explicitly says in Acts, at least in regards to John and Peter, uh, that they were illiterate. The Greek word there is agrammatory, literally translates to unlettered, like they did not know the alphabet. Aside from that, they would have spoke Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Koinian Greek. Not only were the gospel authors literate, they were pretty well educated. They were very familiar with the Old Testament, as well as Jewish law and customs of the time. On top of that, the gospels were written 30, 40, 50, and 60 years after Jesus' death. They were essentially narratives that were formulated around the teachings of Jesus that were passed down via oral tradition. And a lot of those narratives very closely parallel a lot of the narratives in the Old Testament. My favorite example is Joseph of Arimathea was a verbatim copy of Joseph in Genesis 20. The same exact story didn't even change the name. Now to be fair, there are narratives that could very likely be historically plausible, but also some that wouldn't be. One example is Jesus clearing out the temple. The temple was about two dozen acres big. Jesus wouldn't be able to clear it out by himself. And two, the Roman soldiers were there, and they would have arrested him on the spot if he had done anything like that. All that to say, we have no idea who wrote the Gospels. We also have no idea what they originally said, especially since we don't have the first full copy of Mark until about 300 years after Jesus' death. and welcome back to your content warning a bible meets culture podcast where we break down modern theology versus biblical content i'm nathan this is joshua joshua how's it going man man fantastic how are you fantastic i'm borderline fantastic that is my that is my now programmer we need to, to bump up we need to bump up those numbers i'm hoping that by the end of this it'll be way above that borderline um there is a possibility though that we will get so confusing that it'll be below so i'll have to figure some way to balance that out but i'm super excited to be here i'm glad you're doing well um if you are watching this on youtube you will notice that we do have a third person on today uh, last yeah. podcast, we didn't get to do that. We are welcoming in Dr. Doug Burleson from Free Hardman University. Uh, Dr. Burleson, we are super, super excited to have you on. Thank you so much for yes. being here. Hey, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Great to see you guys. Yeah, so you too. Um, I don't know that I actually ever had you in class. I know Joshua did. Um, I'm A pretty lot. sure several times. Sometimes um, it was just he and I. Yeah, yeah. There well. you go. So, uh, so you, I think you probably had him for undergrad as well as graduate mm -hmm. school, didn't you? So, yep, uh, sure did. Be, yeah, they'll they'll be. You'll you'll notice the repertoire between those two much more than than me. But uh, Dr. Doug Blairson has a PhD in New Testament and Greek. Currently teaches. Do you still teach in the undergraduate level, or are you just graduate level now? I do. I teach about half and half. Okay. Um, so, so like right now, I'm doing a couple of undergrad Greek classes and a grad Greek class. That that's kind of where they have me. Perfect. So um, the topic that we're going to get in, if you've already listened to or watched the video that we're going to talk about today, this is right up your alley. So we're really excited cool. to have that today. And uh, the idea today, guys, is uh, the video that we've, we're kind of watching or you've listened to claims that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, there's going to be somebody out there that's going to go, yeah, no, I've kind of heard that before. And then there's going to be somebody out there going, but they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I don't, I don't understand where that comes from. So that's kind of the concept of what we're going to do. And uh, like we try to do 
frequently when we do these videos, we're going to kind of outline what he says that's correct, right? And then we're going to kind of circle back and, and outline what he says is incorrect. Sound good? Absolutely. Sweet. So uh, let's just start with what he gets right, right? Um, and this one, I think, like I said, I think this one's a good one to start with because it probably will be the most confusing to somebody is that the Gospels are indeed anonymous. Yeah, when, you know, most people, when they when they look at their Bible, or even when we bring this up, they're like, wait a minute, but the title in my Bible, in my English Bible, says the gospel according to. So the Bible tells me that it's written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one thing, Dr. Burleson, that um, people who may have never thought about this question uh, perhaps don't realize is that the titles, the chapters, the verses, those didn't fall from heaven in a golden parachute. You know, those, those came about Wait, later. What? So, uh, no. yeah. Right. So maybe Dr. Burleson, you could speak a little bit about, uh, the, the, the original or the, not the original, I guess, but the gospels as we have them being anonymous and some reasons why that may be so, or, uh, how, how we can kind of know a, at least a little bit about who wrote what and why. Yeah, thanks. I uh, the titles that we have, like the Gospel according to John, Kata Ioannin, are fairly uh, early. I mean, these titles are affixed very early in tradition, and so part of the argumentation you'll see involves church fathers, patristic sources that are referring to these books as gospels. That's very early, which is sort of a unique genre. Uh, but in addition to that, just an awareness of an association with a particular apostle or someone in, in the Jesus circle. I mean, you've got two gospels associated with apostles, Matthew and John, and two gospel accounts associated with people close to the apostles. I mean, John Mark is to Peter what Timothy was to Paul. And then you have Luke, who appears to be really close to Paul, traveling with him throughout Acts. So even though they're anonymous, I would just say in brief that uh, for example, in John, John's never named. I mean, John and John is John the baptizer. And so who's the beloved disciple? And truthfully, if it's not John, the son of Zebedee, then we have a real challenge in believing in the historicity of John's account. The same with John Mark. I mean, do we know that he's the young man who's in the garden on the night Jesus was betrayed, who flees with nothing but a uh, some kind of sheet? We don't know that definitively, but if you look at the way that these stories are told, uh, they very clearly involve either eyewitness testimony or secondhand testimony, like John Mark relying on Peter. So the fathers are discussing, was Peter still alive when Mark wrote? Not, did Mark write? And so either very early on, all the Christians were deceived when these books were being read and worshipped, and they were being accepted. Now, we're talking about Hebrews or second and third John or second Peter. Those are different discussions. Uh, I believe that they're inspired and they belong in the new Testament, but uh, these gospel accounts are uh, held onto very early by Christians who I believe understood the historical connection to the apostles and people in the Jesus circle and didn't have to have the first verse say, I'm John Mark and I'm a friend of Peter. And even though I was I was there only part of the time, you know, I'm here to tell you the story of Jesus. Uh, 
maybe kind of like James, the, the brother of Jesus, not starting by saying, I'm the brother of Jesus. Uh, it's more important to get to the, the meat of what that account's about, namely Jesus. And so you can look at the internal evidence and talk about tendencies of different authors. But yeah, they're anonymous, but I don't think that means that they're spurious or that we should discount their content. Do you think, too, that uh, the audiences to whom they were writing plays a role in, in that, like the, that the audience would have known who was writing it in the begin- in the first place, and so there's really not a need to put the name in there? Does that play a role at all or, or not? I, I, it seems that very early there's this question of what can we trust? I mean, there are books that are being circulated very early that are challenging Orthodox teaching and that people are wanting to use in the assembly. And so I think part of the question here is, when does the early church recognize what is canon, meaning, you know, what God has revealed, what what can be held to that high standard? And I think some people wrongly assume that it's not until we see a list published uh, in 367 uh, AD by Athanasius in a letter about when they were going to celebrate Easter when very early on Christians are having to make this decision. So, you know, even if they didn't know Matthew personally, uh, it seems that what we have in these accounts are stories about Jesus written by those who knew Jesus. I mean, even John, uh, as he begins first John talking about what we've seen and touched and looked at, you know, maybe even in response to the way people had misinterpreted the gospel of John. So, I think there's certainly an oral tradition. There's a story that's being circulated. And the two worldviews here, the the guy who gives us the TikTok theology here, uh, you know, this other view is you really can't trust anything that Christians have said because there's a difference between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And this Christ of faith myth has been uh, propped up by these accounts that are non-historical. And that's going to take, I think, more faith to believe in because the evidence just doesn't point that way until you get to the Enlightenment and some decisions that scholars have made over the last 200 years that historically haven't been really accepted by anybody who's orthodox. Yeah. Just for clarification, when you uh, when you say early, like early on, Christian had to make these decisions early, Kind of, can you kind of put a, a time frame as to when early is just for people that may not, you know, I don't. I don't assume that when you say early, you're referring to like the 1700s, you know, so we got to go a little bit back further than that. So, well, I think when they heard this message, uh, when they heard the message proclaimed or read, they had to make a decision about its source, about its reliability. And so I don't think we have to wait for some council to tell us, hey, this is from God. We're making that decision as soon as we hear it or, or read it, if we're blessed to be literate, we'll talk about that more. Uh, and that's a decision that's based on evidence, that's based on testimony. Uh, so again, either they were all deceived and accepted things that were tied to myth, or some historical event had occurred that began this revolution that turned the world right side up. I would namely recommend the resurrection uh, for that. I want to be careful, though, because I think If you argue like, well, people are willing to die for this. Well, people are willing to die for all kinds of things that aren't necessarily true. But the question here is, you know, how do we know it's a holy book? And you got to make that decision 
right off. You can't, you can't just, uh, you know, is this a book we're going to read in the assembly? Are we willing to die for this? Are we going to build doctrine on this? Those are, those are real questions from the very beginning. So early, I would say the first time they hear it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And it, um, it doesn't take long either. Like you said, for these uh, controversies to come up, you know, we, we hear Paul saying, if anyone preaches to you a, a teaching other than what we've given, even if we ourselves do that, you know, you're not to listen to it. Uh, by the time John's writing, Gnosticism has really taken off. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of stuff. And the answer to a lot of those issues is what, what writings are we going to use as authoritative? And of course, at the time of the new Testament that we read, like the uh, first Corinthians or the gospel of John or whatever, the new Testament obviously is still being written rather than completed and canonized as Dr. Burlinson uh, said. So that's, you know, it, controversy isn't new people like our podcast that we're doing a lot of what Nathan and I talk about on this podcast are controversies and people are like, well, we've never heard that before. Well, a lot of what we talk about aren't new debates. Uh, they're just, I think more accessible to a lot of people. For sure. Um, I don't know the Swiss cheese theology term may be new to some people. We'll, we'll have to, <laughs> well, yeah. we'll, have to circle, we'll have to circle back to that. Um, but yeah, so the gospel is being written in an anonymous fashion. I think we forget that a lot of times too, Joshua. To your point, that um, and I don't want to I don't want to overstep and say something totally incorrect there, but it you can piece the gospels together, right? Like Matthew didn't sit down and write his, and then Mark took notes, and then wrote down his, and then like somebody else took notes, and like it didn't happen in that chronological order, right? They all kind of record the same events to different audiences for different purposes. Um, and I think sometimes we just forget that uh, we, okay, we read Genesis and we read through Revelation and everything happened in that exact order, the way that you, we kind of have it placed in front of us. Um, so the idea that uh, everything is, is intertwined with each other, I think is important as well. Um, yeah, so well, yeah there, so there's you, a lot of, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, and Dr. Burleson, I think this is one of your um focal points in your studies uh, is that, you know, the, the Gospels use each other as sources, the, the four Gospels that we have. And I know we didn't write this down in our outline to talk about, but, uh, you know, if, if Mark is the first and there's a lot of evidence to suggest Matthew used Mark and that Luke used Matthew and Mark or Matthew used Mark and Luke or however you want to put it together, depending on what side of the coin you fall on. Um, and, and people look at this as a problem. We call it the synoptic problem, the, the first three Gospels. And, uh, you know, why do they record the same thing but different? And, and that has caused a lot of problem for believers. And uh, even though we didn't write it down on our list to talk about, if, if you would, Dr. Burleson, would you speak to that just for a little bit, too? Yeah, so I appreciate that. I think we need to remember that Christians have a canon before the church is established, namely the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and then... It seems to me that with what Peter says in Second Peter about Paul's writings, calling them scripture, and with what even Paul refers to in First Timothy 5, referring to something Jesus says as scripture, that very early on, there's the recognition that God's continuing to speak. And that's significant, especially after 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, if you will, the way that we organize it. But then you come to the gospel accounts and... 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot in common. They seem to follow the same order. Uh, they, as you noted, tell similar stories, although from the very beginning, you note their differences. I mean, in the first 13 verses, Mark covers what it takes Matthew and Luke, four chapters to cover. And uh, you've got the genealogy of Matthew 1. You've got the birth narrative and Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. And then there's John, and John talks about Lazarus and the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus and these I am sayings, and it just seems so different. And so part of the, quote, synoptic problem is just asking what kind of relationship. We know they have a relationship, but how did that come about? Did one of them depend on the other ones? Did they have an oral tradition, common source? And so there are a multitude of theories that propose answers to that question, given what they have in common and how they differ from one another. But I just compare this to a really great artist who has a blank canvas, and they're offering us four beautiful pictures of who Jesus Christ is, and they complement each other. And even though they overlap in a lot of ways, you know, Mark's emphasis on Jesus's authority as the son of man, Luke's emphasis on Jesus uh, being a ransom who, uh, and Mark mentions that too, obviously, but uh, Jesus goes out of his way to minister to women and Samaritans and tax collectors and talk about justice. And then Matthew, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel's been looking for. And so even though, you know, I think, Unfortunately, this gets misrepresented as, well, it's just three basic ways of saying the same thing. Well, where do you get the Sermon on the Mount? Only in Matthew. Uh, and even though Luke gives us the Sermon on the Plain, it's different. You know, where do you get uh, in Mark's gospel, the extended version of the parable of the sower and two accounts of Jesus calming the storm on Galilee? Um, so they're they're different, but they're they're similar. And here's the thing, like scholarship would react negatively if they were exactly the same and scholarship would react negatively if they were completely different. Yeah. And so we just have to recognize how people play the game and that they sometimes hold scripture uh, to a different standard than they would any other piece of literature because they assume that you can't be religious and historically accurate uh, because you have some kind of bias that prevents you from thinking objectively. And what this podcast, I think, is highlighting is the fact that uh, the historical evidence is on the side of Christianity, and it's on the side of the validity of Scripture. And so the burden of proof will accept it. But for people to throw claims out there that are unsubstantiated is pretty common, especially in a Internet world. Yes, yeah. sir. Well, so speaking of, you know, claim, we'll get to those claims that are unsubstantiated in just a second. But the second thing that he does get right in this particular video is that the New Testament was written in and they're Greek buffs and I'm not. So I'm going to say Koine Greek. And if that's not how you pronounce it, that's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, the New Testament was written in Koine, which I think translates to common, just like common everyday Greek. Right. So. Uh, so, yeah, um, that was the that is the language of the New Testament, which is. Uh, I'm sure that you all have spent countless thousands of hours translating passages from that to English. Well, the funny thing about it is when, when I started as a Greek student uh, under Dr. Jesse Robertson and then under Dr. Burleson, it was, you know, I would tell my, I'd call home and tell my mom like, Hey, I'm learning how to translate Greek. And she's like, Oh, it, it, how are you doing? I'm like, it's so hard. And then, 
I don't remember if it was Dr. Burleson or Dr. Robertson who said, this Greek is, no, it wasn't. It was neither one of you. It was Dr. Rogers because he made <laughs> me cry. Um, it was, he, he, he said, you know, if you think this is hard, you should try translating like Josephus or uh, some kind of classical Greek, which is a totally different ballgame. And Nathan, you hit the nail on the head. You know, Koine Greek is common language. It's everyday colloquial language. It's it's like us reading, uh, you know, a, a children's book rather than an academic journal article. And uh, Dr. Burleson, I, I think uh, you would be really good to comment on this too, is the importance of the New Testament, what we have being written in a language that was understandable by anyone who would, uh, let's say, read or hear it. Yeah, thank you. I uh, Greek teachers always encourage, right, by telling you, you think this is hard, you know, <laughs> wait. Uh, no, I, Adolf Deissmann, a famous uh, German scholar, used to argue that there was sort of a Holy Spirit Greek, a way that scripture had been written that was uh, not common, that was sort of more reverent and spiritual in nature. But what we've seen is that the Greek of the New Testament is the Greek of uh, tombstones and non-literary papyri, which is basically a fancy way of saying letters that soldiers wrote home. Uh, you know, we have pieces of broken pottery, ostraca, that have grocery lists on them. And, and that's the language that the New Testament is written in. And so uh, I think it is interesting that the common language of the ancient Mediterranean world is the language that the New Testament is written in. So that says something about not only the accessibility of this for everyone who is literate or within earshot of those who are literate, but it also says something, I think, about the heart of our God that... Uh, this wasn't in some secret code that had to be uh, deciphered and only the uh, enlightened could get access to that. This is that's the stuff of mystery religions and science fiction. And it sells books, you know, Bible code, secret message, but it's not the way God works. And I'm thankful for that. Absolutely. All, all three of I, us as ministers know the importance of making the the word of God or uh, uh, the, the the message accessible to everyone who is in our in our pews and Nathan, you know, up at Troy. I mean, you may have one person who's studied the Bible their whole life, and you may have one person who that's their first Sunday ever hearing the Word of God. So uh, it's it's great that that God works to make it accessible to to whosoever will. Yeah, well, I was going to say I think it's incredibly interesting how um, when you look at the Scripture and how it was written in that everyday language, in that common language, so that everybody could understand it. And now we've got it printed for us in, in English. We try to overcomplicate it again, right? And and we get to the point where we're like, well, I could never understand the Bible because it was written in Greek. You know, I've got no idea what that, you know, and, and there's all these questions that kind of arise. And um, I just, I find that to be one of those points of irony where uh, it was written specifically to be understood by everybody. And now we go back and we try to overcomplicate everything that we read, which, again, I don't know if funny is the right word and more ironic than anything, I guess. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, you've, you know, I think everybody understands the importance of 
no matter what message you have, if it's not understood, you haven't thoroughly communicated whatever it is that you're trying to communicate, um, which is really important uh, in, in the way that the New Testament is written. We also want to point out that uh, one of the, this third truth that we have in this video is that the Gospels were written after the life and death of Jesus. Um, this was not, uh, and I say I want to be careful I don't speak something that, you know, might could have been true, but, you know, was was formally written after the fact that this wasn't Matthew or Mark or Luke, you know, walking around with a notepad and pencil just going, oh, this will make a good story later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jot this down, um, you know, something along those lines, which, again, those teachings and everything that, you know, could have put in a mental bank. But uh, the Gospels were written after uh, after the life and death of Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't just jump in here for a second. Uh, when you look at Acts and what Luke does and the travel narrative of Paul, it, it does seem like there might be some kind of travel journal. Yeah. It could have been a part of his record of that. And so uh, I don't know exactly how, uh, especially Matthew and John, but even Luke and, and Mark uh, necessarily people want to talk about inspiration and divine recollection, and maybe they don't have to have notes because there's some kind of overriding of the system. Right. And the truth is we don't know how we just know what yeah. we don't know how all this happened. We just know what the product was. And so obviously you've got a window from 27 to 30 CE or AD where all these things are happening. And then it gets written about 30 to 50 years later, depending on how you date those accounts. So I don't, know why that's problematic unless somebody wants to argue that it's all invented because there's just not any historical validity. You know, Jesus died and people panicked and made up this story. Uh, wow, what a great job they did, given what resulted from that. Yeah, and I think in, in the video, he says, if memory serves me right, he says something about, you know, these, um, these Gospels were written it's not just after Jesus died, which we're all like, well, duh, but several years after Jesus died. Like if you take what what I'll call a conservative view of the Gospel of John and correct me if I'm wrong, but most would say that that was written conservatively, that that was written somewhere in the mid to late 80s, early 90s. And if Jesus dies in 33, 35 Something somewhere in there, depending on how you run the numbers and with his birth and whatnot, um, that's that's sixty years yeah. after Jesus died. But I think too, and Doctor Burleson mentioned this earlier about the faith that you have to have when you approach the text. And I don't want to, I don't want to just throw everything on faith. I think that's important, but you know, I don't want us to say, well, you know, you're going to have to believe or just get out of the way. Uh, we God gives us proof for belief, which is a wonderful thing. But John, when John records Jesus in the upper room, he says, the Spirit's coming, the Helper's coming, and he will allow you to recall these things to mind. I think that's a big, uh, important, noteworthy thing that a lot of critics miss. And they miss it because they don't believe or they, they're, they're looking for reasons not to believe. But if you have that promise, you know, how do they, how do they record all these things in such vivid detail that they do? Like I'm, I'm amazed when I read the gospel of John at some of these parenthetical statements that don't seem to matter. Like in John six, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, uh, I forget what verse it is somewhere around verse 10. Uh, 
Jesus says, have the people sit down. And then John says, for there was much grass in that place. Well, who cares about the grass? Uh, but John remembers the detail. And it's, uh, I think it goes to show an eyewitness account, like Dr. Burleson was saying, and the ability to recall these things uh, is very important that, that we remember that. So, yeah, it, they were written later, but, you know, if you had to write down an account of your third grade year of elementary school, you might could come up with some things that pretty vividly stand out in your mind, uh, especially if they impacted you in a significant way. So like when I was in third grade, um, I got a pocket knife for Christmas and I took the pocket knife to school. That was not cool. Don't you, you shouldn't do that because you get in a lot of trouble. I Especially could, now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was different, you know, however many years ago that was. But uh, long story longer, the, the whole issue of writing so far away from the actual event really shouldn't be as much of an issue as people make it out to be. At least I don't think. Well, so that's I, I don't want to I don't want to jump on your point too bad there, Joshua. But it, it it never ceases to amaze me how people will take things that we should consider to be strengths of God or of Scripture and try to make them weaknesses. So okay, the Gospels were written this many years after the life and death of Jesus, and yet they still that accurately or that in much detail depict this. And I guess the idea is, is, well, if they're actually having that much detail so many years after the fact, then they have to be made up. But it should, in my opinion, just reiterate how much or how accurate that should be able to be. I mean, these were things that, and I, again, to your point, there are things that I don't necessarily remember from the second grade. Um, but there are absolutely things that if I watched what Jesus did, I'm pretty sure those things would stick with me for a very long time. Um, so it, it just, it fascinates. We do the same thing with God, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but you know, we, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, can, can God lie? And we say, well, no, well, then he's not all powerful. I'm like, well, in what world is being able to lie considered a strength or a weakness and not a strength? You know, I mean, like one of those type of mentalities. So to yeah. your point, I don't, I don't, I would, I don't understand. Uh, maybe that's my lack of academia, but I don't understand why things that, should be perceived as strength. They're actually just being used to weaken, supposedly weaken, uh, you know, scripture or whatever. Yeah. The only other option is redaction. I mean, you, if there's not inspiration involved, uh, then there has to be some kind of cleanup where people try to reconcile these accounts. And we do have content that Matthew and Luke share about 250 verses that primarily involves things Jesus said. And even though there's a lot of controversy and division over, you know, is there another source? Some people call it the Q source and all that. You know, it's interesting that if somebody did take notes, that theory at least indicates it's the things Jesus said. So you have people remembering miracles and maybe even recording those stories in forms that would be repeated orally through the years and then written down. And you have the question about, as, as Joshua brought up, from John 14 through 16, Jesus' promise to the apostles to give them a recollection. So you either trust that as being how this came about, or somebody came along later and made it look like it's all a part of the same story. And that's really the only other option. And that requires 
us to go into the question of um, how these books were received and how they were copied and whether or not people could be just deceived in mass by someone like a scribe or a group of scribes inventing orthodoxy, which is a pretty bold claim that I don't know uh, how you would support that hypothesis with actual evidence. Well, on that note, that's a really good transition to our next point right, was, that the video gets right, uh, which which is, uh, consult my notes here on the screen, <laughs> which is we don't have the originals or the closest copies to the originals. Now, I think Dr. Burleson and I are probably thinking of an individual who has made this claim very famous in uh, writings. And Nathan, I don't know, have you read any of uh, Bart Ehrman's books? Does that name sound familiar to you? I'm assuming no, most of but- most of our listeners was, won't know. Yeah, what? probably not. I was I was waiting for an opportunity to make the joke about how we don't have the originals, or and I was I was going to try to work in something along the lines of, um, "Are you telling me that we don't have Jesus's King James Bible, like on display at the Smithsonian or something along those lines?" Um, and yeah. look, don't get me wrong. If you want to use the King James version of the Bible, more power to you. I've got no issues with that whatsoever. Uh, but I I just it it never ceases to amaze me that uh, we don't have the originals or the closest copies to the originals. And so we try to just go back to whatever we have. That's the oldest and, and thinking and our thinking that that means it's the most correct. Um, yeah. But well, no, if, I, the King I, James I, was good enough for Paul. It's good enough for us. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but, so but yeah, but no, I've, I don't know that I've ever read anything by, uh, by, as you say, Bert and Ernie, is that his name? <laughs> Bart Ehrman. Well, I, th- I think <laughs> I think clearly this guy in our video is heavily influenced by Dr. Ehrman and his books. Uh, Dr. Ehrman, he is a bona fide scholar. He's he's uh, a text- textual critic, you know. But he has made his his statement in the world basically by taking academic issues in biblical uh, in biblical studies and making them available for popular level audiences. Um, a lot of his books are intended to be read by popular. Well, some of his more famous books are intended to be read by popular level audiences. And I think the guy in our video today has read those books or, uh, you know, been heavily influenced by Dr. Irma. And there are others out there. I, everyone wants to, you know, talk down on this, this particular guy because he's the famous one of, of my generation at least. Um, but it is true. We don't have the originals. We don't have copies of the originals. As, as Dr. Ehrman so famously says, we don't have copies of the 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 originals. Um, but Dr. Burleson might have something different to say about that. This is why I was so excited to have him on today. Get him, get him Dr. Well, Burleson. Well, first of all, the guy that posted the video, you know, I don't, I don't know him. I think this is a good reminder that there are people in the public square who don't share our presuppositions and who have a worldview that's very different than ours because they have bought into some theories that are very popular, but that I don't think are supported by all of the evidence. And so Ehrman tells the story in his uh, popularized book, Misquoting Jesus. And he was on the daily show with John Stewart promoting that uh, sold well. And the basic premise of the book is scribes invented Christianity he tells the story of going to Moody Bible Institute 
and being uh, committed to ministry and basically losing his faith. And so he's written on not only text criticism, but the problem of suffering and evil and uh, lost Christianities and all these other things. And so I think just like with our video that we're thinking about today, some of the things that Dr. Ehrman says are, are true. I mean, there are lots of variations in the text of the New Testament. Uh, I would argue that they're there because human beings have copied it and that that's not a inspiration problem or even a what's canonical, what should be in the Bible problem, that that's a result of human beings copying the text. And sometimes they make mistakes, either intentionally changing things because they think it should be something else or unintentionally having errors. Uh, but as a restorationist, I'm interested in trying to see how those autograph texts, how we would refer to the initial or original text, read. And so even in mainstream scholarship, you have now this method of comparing manuscripts where you basically create a family tree. Uh, now, the long name is the Coherent Space Genealogical Method, the CBGM, but it's basically a way of designing a family tree and asking how are these manuscripts related to each other in a stemma? What do they have in common? How are they different? And the whole purpose of that is to ask which text was initial. That's the way they'll refer to it, or original. And so, you know, saying we don't have the original manuscripts, I think for a lot of Christians would be like saying, uh, you know, we don't have the church in Jerusalem still meeting that was established on the first day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. And so because that original congregation is no longer meeting, we can't know what the original church looked like. Well, as restorationists, we we're not asking what do the majority of people do so we can act like that. We're asking what was most likely original. And so when you compare these manuscripts, you can look at their date, you can look at their character, you can look at authorial tendencies, meaning what did the writer usually do or what did scribes usually do. Scribes usually try to simplify things and in doing so make text longer and explain away difficulties. And so it's an art and a science, but it basically is an exercise that allows us to ask, you know, how did this most likely originally read? And for most Christians, where you'll see it is when you compare English translations, especially like the KJV, New King James, ASV tradition with other translations. And, you know, I think if there's anybody listening who's thinking, I don't know Greek and I don't know how to participate in this, what in the world am I supposed to do? I think the best advice would be to read comparatively and don't trust your study Bibles respectfully because they're going to present their own agenda depending on their philosophy and they're going to confuse sometimes, especially with the big four New Testament text variant questions. The ending of Mark, you know, Mark 16, 9 through 20, the story of the adulterous woman in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, the confession of the eunuch in Acts 8, 37, and the uh, statement that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost in 1 John 5, 7, and 8. There are others, but those are the four that typically people are going to notice, and it's going to raise questions. You know, does this belong in my Bible or not? And uh, that's why I think people can question the Bible sometimes based on these things. And Ehrman says, well, look, if there are questions there, well, then there should be questions everywhere. And he can't trust it. 
And because, you know, isn't it interesting that for people who talk about the authority of Scripture so much, maybe we haven't spent a lot of time in our congregations talking about how we got the Bible and why we can trust the Bible. And so when Ehrman comes along and says, aha, look at this, you know, a lot of people are like, we've been looking for a reason to question Scripture. Thank you for giving that to us. And, you know, tragically, uh, Ehrman is a great writer who sensationalizes the evidence to misrepresent the facts. And you can look at his discussions with a lot of folks, including Dan Wallace, who sometimes misrepresents the facts himself, to be fair. Uh, but they have, I think, shown thoroughly that uh, we're not misquoting Jesus. We're acknowledging the imperfection of the scribes who copied scripture. Yeah. This video is not in any way, form, or fashion sponsored by Bear, uh, Bear Valley, but Denny Petrillo does a phenomenal job in his seminar about how we got the Bible. Um, I can remember listening to that. I believe I was a, I believe I had just graduated college when he came to Paris uh, and and did that seminar, and that was a lot of things in that that I had never thought about, um, and and a lot of it was is just an idea of look it's okay to use some other translation of the Bible because this is how we got it. And there are things that we go back to that might lead us to believe that there are some translations that are more accurate than others, but that everything needs to be uh, read regardless of translation with a certain level of discernment. Um, and a lot of that is because we don't have the original copies. I've, I do, I, I want to point this out. This is <clears throat> very, very much just anecdotal, but I do very much remember uh, an older preacher saying one time uh, that he hopes it is his biggest hope in his life that when he gets to heaven, that the original copies of the gospels are on display in heaven so that he can go through and read and see what he got right and what he got wrong. And uh, for me personally, I don't know if I really, I don't, I don't know. I, I go back to that. Do I really want to know everything that I taught that I got wrong? Um, throughout the course of my life, or uh, or will it matter? But anyway, that's completely well, I think, anecdotal. There. I think there's a big difference between uh, saying we don't have the original manuscripts and saying we don't have the original wording. And this is where CBGM that Dr. Burleson talked about has really taken strides because you know it's one thing to take a manuscript and to date the papyrus to the fifth century. It's another thing to take that same manuscript and look at the wording and trace the wording back even farther uh, as, as far as is possible, which this new method of textual criticism, which is really, really new uh, is just now taking off and, and doing. So we spent a lot of time already talking about what, what he got yeah. right. And the thing about what he got right is he got them right, but you need to know why he got them right. So that's what we've been trying to do so far. And we only have like four minutes left to talk about what he got wrong. So I, oh, that's all it, good. If it's, we'll, we'll go uh, through some of these pretty quickly, dude. Too, yeah. Because uh, when you're talking about what he got wrong, so he makes the comment: the disciples were illiterate. Um, I don't care who wants to tackle that one. The disciples who wrote the gospels, who spoke in this. Well, I say that that's the next one. But the disciples. Well, we, who we can tackle these, both of those together. Three, all right. So the disciples were illiterate, and that and Jesus they only spoke only, Aramaic. Yeah, they only spoke Aramaic. Um, which, if you believe that, does create kind of a problem since the gospels were written in Greek. <laughs> so I'll let one of y'all tackle that one. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Burleson. <laughs> You're the expert in, in the field. Well, uh, it's true that the apostles really impressed people 
like in Acts 4.13, uh, you know, who are these uneducated Galileans? They're a bunch of redneck fishermen. Uh, they shouldn't know this much. But I think we have to, uh, and a great resource on this would be a book written by a guy named Harry Gamble, Books and Readers in the Early Church. Especially among Jewish men, literacy rates were actually really high. Now, I don't think Peter's Greek was necessarily all that good. We're not talking about First and Second Peter, but if you compare the Greek uh, and you think, okay, Silas or Silvanus was clearly aiding uh, as a secretary in First Peter based on what's said in First Peter 5, the Greek's a lot better than it is in Second Peter. Uh, but no one can definitively claim what languages these men spoke because all the recordings are lost, right? I mean, it's just speculation, but we know that especially among Jewish men, there are many bilingual or trilingual people, and Aramaic is the language of the synagogue. That's why Targum, or uh, interpretation of scripture, is given in Aramaic, and Greek is the language of the ancient world. So we're not saying everybody's fluent in every language. Uh, a friend of mine who teaches at Faulkner uh, wrote a book, you know, Jesus spoke Greek. Did Jesus speak Greek? And his whole thesis was, yeah, and that solves this problem. I, I don't buy that same theory in that I think Jesus spoke Greek, but that's not what gives us security in the gospel accounts. It's the fact that you have men being led by God who are offering translations of that into Greek. So yeah, I think Jesus spoke Aramaic and Greek and a number of the apostles, maybe not all of them. We don't, we don't know what all their training was, but synagogue school was a place where you learn to read. You learn to read scripture. And you're exposed to language. And so uh, there's a lot more we could say there. I know time's short, but um, that's a really bold claim that cannot be substantiated by the historical evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so even though this is outside of my realm of expertise, I stayed with these pretty well until we got to this one. The next thing that he gets wrong is that Joseph, Ar Joseph of Arimathea, right? Joseph of Arimathea, not his last name, um, is just a copy of the Joseph in Genesis. And that one, I, I, Joshua, did you kind of get an idea of where he's coming from with that? Because that one, I mean, I don't Man, want to when, be the, when he said the that, room, but that one way over my head. Yeah, when he said that, I'd never heard that before, even in studying uh, John and, and Genesis. And I, I, I've, uh, I've done a lot of extensive study in Genesis here lately, and I, I've never seen that comparison. So I was, I was kind of hoping Dr. Burleson would have uh, something on that, but I, that, I, that's not popularized in anything that I've seen, and I don't know where he's coming from with that. You know, there are a lot of names that are popular. Every every Jewish family wanted to name their little girl Miriam or Mary, uh, Jesus, Joshua, or Jesus is a popular name. There are other Jesuses in the Mediterranean world, Jewish men who are buried in ossuaries or bone boxes. So every time we find a bone box, with Jesus's name or James's name or Joseph's name, Yosef, we you know think, oh, could this be a connection? And uh, could Joseph of Arimathea have been given a name that was connected to the historical Joseph? Uh, probably. I mean, a lot of Jewish families did that. But uh, the thought that this is the same person being retold, you've got to buy some crazy conspiracy redaction theory and... Uh, you know, I'm all for people asking hard questions that challenge the historicity of things that we believe, but this is a Hail Mary if I've ever seen one. 
Mm-hmm. And I would just suggest that it's incomplete in the end zone and the game's yeah. over. Well, I mean, and, you know, asking hard questions, you know, they have to be hard questions that have some sort of merit to them. Like, I, I just don't see where the merit is to this whatsoever. Um, so you've got that one. Uh, he goes on to say that Jesus cleansing the temple was improbable. Um, and so there's so much I could say about that. Number one, improbable doesn't mean impossible. Uh, and two, if you were going to dictate your life that everything was not true just because it was improbable, you don't believe in much of anything, um, whether that's scripture or, uh, you know, driving your car back and forth to work every day. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, improbable doesn't provide any sort of proof. Now, again, there is always the argument that, you know, the more probable something is, the more believable it is and, and so on and so forth. But just because Jesus, and again, there, I, I would, I, I think you could argue that it would be probable that Jesus would cleanse the temple, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother argument that I'll let you to elaborate on. But improbable doesn't mean impossible. Um, and if, if that's your sole basis of, of thinking, uh, I'm not gonna make a comment. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, guys. Oh, you're good. You're good. Um, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> if you, uh, if you're going to, and I mean, and again, I know he's focusing basically just on the gospels, um, when he says this, however, if you're going to try to pick something out of scripture that would be quote unquote improbable by today's standards, uh, I feel like there's a lot better targets to go after than Jesus cleansing a temple. Um, that's just my opinion. Yeah, well, when he cleanses the temple, he he doesn't. It, it's not that he, uh, and maybe I'm misremembering, but it, I don't think it's that he goes in and you know cleanses six acres. He he cleanses the or he he drives out the money changers. And uh, I, I'm not as historically familiar with the layout of the temple as uh, maybe Doctor Burleson would be, especially in the New Testament. Um, but that wouldn't require a six acre cleansing, I wouldn't think. It's a huge area. I mean, this is a uh, temple courts. This is probably the, the court of the Gentiles where the, where the place that Jesus says, you know, don't make my father's house, this house of prayer into a place of merchandise. Uh, you know, there are some Christian scholars like D.A. Carson who argue this happens twice because of John two thirteen through 25, including a cleansing that's really different, or at least chronologically different than what you read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, uh, it is difficult to imagine with Romans being stationed in the northwest corner of the temple at Fortress Antonia and millions or hundreds of thousands, we don't really know, uh, Jews being there for Passover, somebody coming in and doing this. But the reaction of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the fact that this comes up at his trial, uh, this in some ways is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, this is not something people did very frequently. Uh, but I would just humbly say that Jesus isn't like most people and he can act with authority in a way that isn't, that doesn't cross the line. Although I think for a lot of those Jewish leaders, this certainly crossed the line because it was their territory that they were interested in protecting their power. And that's exactly what Jesus challenged. And so, uh, it's just like everything else we've said about this particular video. It's easy to throw these claims out there, but how about going back to the primary literature doesn't take faith to necessarily believe that these things could have happened. Uh, Jews are known for insurrection. That's why Jerusalem gets destroyed several times 
And so improbable to cleanse the temple. How about it's probable to lead a revolt? Not that Jesus did, but like historically, there are people, why did Pilate mix the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices, according to Luke 13? Because the Jews and Romans frequently have terrible relationships that lead to conflict and insurrection and murder. And that's why the zealots are so violent, most of them at least. So uh, this was a place that was bloody and hostile and dangerous. And so just stepping aside from like the Jesus question, could things like this have happened in Jerusalem during a huge pilgrimage feast? Uh, yeah, all the time, uh, because you're living in a, you know, in a place that's probably more comparable to Afghanistan than America. Hmm. Yeah, I think we forget that a lot of times too. Um, but you you made a comment about going back to the to the primary text, and we'll kind of close with this one because he does. It's kind of how he wraps up his video, right? Uh, he wraps up his video with with pro. I, I say the biggest claim that he, he probably makes throughout this uh, is that we we do not know uh, what the original Gospels said or what the Gospels originally said. There is not a way for us to know that, and therefore we don't because of X, Y, Z, which we've already talked about. Um, so, and again, if you're a Christian, that's a pretty bold statement to make, right? Because everything that you believe is predicated off of, well, yeah, no, I, I can believe what, what Scripture tells me. Uh, and so uh, I, I love that Joshua just put in parentheses Dr. Burleson's expertise. <laughs> well, it is. Well, I, I, I would just quickly say that um, the criteria that groups like the Jesus Seminar use to establish what we do know are uh, very selective and very biased. We all have biases, but they assume that if the story gets told twice, that it's somehow been embellished and can't be trusted. There's an anti-supernaturalist assumption that if you can't correlate it to our experiences, it can't be true. And so, I mean, we just have to understand that when you approach scripture saying, well, miracles can't be real, and you know the resurrection can't be historically accurate, these are all myths. This is where you end up. And so uh, I think the tendency, not with you guys, but with some Christians, is to sort of make fun of this and like, let's get around it and beat up on it for a little while. But I think our response to this kind of thing should be a desire to, with compassion, go to people and, you know, tell them what the Lord has done for us and how he has had compassion on us, Mark five nineteen And uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And so may we as God's people not sit in our church buildings and just talk about the good old days and how much we love Jesus. Let's recognize there's a world full of people that don't clearly know him. Yeah, I think, too, um, as we kind of close this episode, uh, two things that I want to make sure that we do before we go. And this is a good transition to the first is um, that that people you know, as Christians, it's easy for us to think that these questions don't impact the people uh, that that are Christians, um, that, that we've never thought about these questions. But as we've seen, they they circulate, they're popular, and the Internet has made that even more so. Um, and, and so one resource, uh, I want to give uh, Dr. Burleson a shameless plug here. One resource that you uh, need and, and will help you is a great book that he wrote called Once Delivered, Forever Established. You can find it on Amazon, and uh, it, it's a great book and an easy read. 
but it deals with a lot of what we've talked about today. And uh, another thing before we go is, uh, Dr. Burleson, if you would give another shameless plug for the Freed Hardeman lectures that are coming up in February, Lord willing, and uh, tell everyone what we're going to be studying and how that's going to play out. Wow. Thank you. I, I may extend this another hour talking about the lecture. Too, <laughs> but, uh, no, no. I uh, Last year we studied Ecclesiastes. It just felt right given what we were all going through and some are still going through. So Lord willing, February 6th through the 10th, 2022. Um, here's the theme. He went about doing good, the compassion of Christ in Luke. And we have about 200 sessions. We're doing some stuff that We'll remind people of what they like about the lectureship. We're doing some new stuff. Uh, there's a marriage enrichment week uh, seminar that we're adding this year. We are revamping the forum, missions forum. Uh, we're trying to be, we always strive to stay in the text. And Luke raises so many questions. I mean, there's so much unique material there, including like the questions of historiography and how Luke tells his story. Some things we've talked about today. But I would also just encourage people with the fact that it's going to be very practical. We all are in ministry. So if you are still concerned with COVID, we get it. We're actually pre-recording 13 lessons. There'll be two lectureship books. I told you I was going to go an hour. Uh, our regular 13-week study for congregational use. And for the first time in 86 years, a lady study book. The 13 women are writing and they're going to be presenting that week. And That's fantastic. So there's just that a lot great. of stuff that I could that I could push. And if you are still not sure you want to come to campus with all the pandemic stuff, we're going to be streaming. We're going to be making this available in a number of different formats. So thanks for letting me talk about that. Um, we've got some videos that are about to, to drop. I'm going to sound cool when I say that. About to drop some videos, but uh, no, we're really excited about it. Appreciate, appreciate you guys, what you're doing here. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Thank you Absolutely. for being part of it. Uh, so we're super, super excited and thankful that you were able to get on. As we kind of close up, uh, like always, thank you guys for paying attention, for listening to us. Uh, if you have questions or comments, let us know. You can comment on YouTube. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, or wherever you get your podcast. We're in, in pretty much every place you can find us. If you're ever in uh, the Obion County area, you can come see me at the Troy Church of Christ. If you're ever in, I guess it's Rutherford County, right? I don't ask right. you that like every time. You can go... Uh, see Joshua at the Salem Creek Church of Christ, or if you're ever in Henderson, Tennessee, you can find Dr. Doug uh, at Gardner Center. I'm not going to give everybody your office because I don't want you to get hate mail or anything like hey. that. He's got he's got office hours in the Gardner Center on Mondays from eight to nine, Wednesdays from one to four, and Tuesdays from Thursdays, like almost the whole day it looks like. So uh, super excited. Or if you're in the area, I believe you still preach at the Estes Church of Christ, correct? Yeah, and shoot yeah, me an email. So. I'd love to talk more if anybody has questions. Absolutely. So um, we are very thankful for you to be on. We're very thankful for you guys to keep listening. Uh, we're going to continue to put these out, like we said, once a month. Uh, until next time, thank you, everybody, and uh, we'll see you.